We're going to turn now to Psalm 92. Well, as we move into the new year, 2024, uh, I thought that instead of going back to the, to the Hebrews series we're, we've been doing, which we'll start and go back to next week, that I want to take a, a few moments here and talk about uh, in the Psalms here about a Psalm that talks about how we can be glad. Yeah, I've been reading the Psalms recently, and this one really stuck out to me in that regard. Over the years, I've noticed as people go through the holiday seasons, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's coming up, that, that although these are joyful times, and we really appreciate so much uh, many of the things that we do at this time of year, uh, yet for everybody, it's not a happy time. For some people, it's a very difficult time for various reasons. And on top of that, uh, even for the best of us, uh, we're tired. <laughs> we, uh, we've, we're emotionally, physically, sometimes spiritually, we're kind of exhausted. We've been through a lot. And uh, quite frankly, at this time of year, often there's people that are down a bit. And so I want to turn to a psalm that will lift us up and, and set the agenda for the year to come. And this is Psalm 92. Matter of fact, the early, earlier rabbis in about, uh, about 1,000, about 1, 1,500 years ago uh, decided that they wanted to, to highlight certain psalms for every day of the week for their people. And so they chose uh, Psalm 24 for Sunday. And they chose Psalm 48 for Monday. For Tuesday, it was Psalm 82. Uh, for Wednesday, Psalm 114. Thursday, Psalm 81. Friday, Psalm 93. And for Saturday, their Sabbath, their most holy day, they chose Psalm 92. And that has been part of the ritual for many of the Jewish people since. The question on the agenda today is, is what is it that makes you happy? What is it that brings you delight and joy? Uh, when you've answered that question, you'll know a whole lot about yourself and a whole lot about your heart and a whole lot about your purpose in life. What is it that makes you happy? Everyone is seeking joy. Everyone. And when you become a Christian, uh, you don't stop seeking joy. You just seek it for it in a place that others have never discovered. That, that place, of course, as this psalm will reveal, is found in Christ alone. And so joy is something we seek, but uh, most people don't know where they're looking for it. People want it. People want to be happy, but they don't know where to find it. Have you ever lost something and you search for days to find it and you can't find it? And then you find it in one of the most weirdest of all places. Some lady told me once that she looked for days for her car keys, found them in the refrigerator. Now, why would you look there first, right? I mean, that's, that's where most people put their car keys. Uh, well, most people are looking for happiness. Matter of fact, everybody is, I think. But most people don't know where to look. When we come to Christ, we don't stop looking for happiness and joy. We find it in a different place, a place where most people have never searched. That place is in the Lord himself. As we turn to this psalm today, uh, it has spoken to the heart of God's people for centuries. Matter of fact, if you look at the superscription at the top of the psalm, it says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. And so this has been sung all the way back to the times of David, or thereabouts, on the Sabbath day. A song and a prayer to be sung and prayed on the Sabbath day itself. Our psalmist then has drawn the conclusion that it is the Lord who makes us glad. As, and he observes, first of all, that that gladness is found in God. And then he looks at people who can't find it because they're looking in the wrong places. And then finally, he turns to people that he calls righteous who have found this joy in the Lord. And he wants to identify who they are and how they live. Let's start off with God. It's always a good spot to start in anything in life. And so in verse 1, he tells us, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. 
As we start with the Lord here, and he, and he starts by doing that, the psalmist knows that it's good to praise God. And that is where we need to start. We start with ourselves, and we may never get to God. We start with our, our, our circumstances. We may never get to the true solutions uh, of life. The, uh, the, the, it, we need to start where the psalmist starts. He starts with the Lord. And he starts by praising the Lord. Now, I think by default, most people are, are uh, complainers. Uh, we complain about the weather. We complain about people. We complain about our health. We complain about the traffic. We, we tend to be complainers. And if left to ourselves, that's what we continue to be. And yet I think the psalmist is saying we need to look beyond that and let's look at the good things in life. So there, here's a good turn as we move into the, 20, the, to the next century, or century, I don't know, next year. As, I'm not quite that far gone yet, are we? Uh, as we look into the next year to refocus our attention away from all the things that distract from the good things of life and look at the good and wonderful things the Lord has blessed us with. And we could tick off a lot of those. If we wanted to, and we should on occasion, let's refocus. But of all the good things that we can turn to, there's none that is comparable to the Lord himself. And so the psalmist says it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing his praises. It's good. The, the best of the best is to turn to him. And as he does that, he turns first of all to who the Lord is and then to what he's done. We start with who he is, and that's in verse 2. He looks at a couple of the attributes of God. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. We often encourage you here to uh, think about the attributes of God, to pray about the attributes of God, uh, to consider those. If you need a, a nice book to read, we always turn you to A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy, just a 120-page masterpiece that talks about the uh, different attributes of God. Our elders, when they pray up here, some of you observe this, some of you might not, but when our elders pray, they're not only praying for our congregation and for the various things that they should pray for, they're also giving you an example of how to pray. And they're always, uh, or at least most always, I trust, starting out with some attribute of God, something to praise God for. And that's the pattern that we want to lay. Before we give our petitions to Him, we start out by praising God. Now, what could you praise Him for? And so we say, look at the attributes of God, and you might very quickly run dry on that. So we turn to the psalmist in verse 2 and look at two attributes that he focuses on that all of us should focus on. Two wonderful attributes of God. First of all, loving kindness. To declare your loving kindness in the morning. Uh, loving kindness is this word hesed that we mentioned when we went through the psalms. Many times it shows up in the psalms. It's that special word, Hebrew word, H-E-S-E-D, that is found in the, in the Hebrew that means a combination of a number of things that really cannot ex be expressed in any one English word. It's a word that means love. It's a word that means mercy. It's a word that means tenderness. It's a word that means loyalty. You put that in a package, and you've got the word hesed, which is translated in the New American Standard that we're using as loving kindness. And I think that's the best translation anywhere. There's all sorts of translations that do it differently, but I think this is the best. Loving kindness. Uh, let us thank the Lord for His loving kindness. And it's a word that is used of love in a very special way at, at the time when we need it most. When we're really down, when we're really struggling, when we really have heartaches, when we really don't know where to turn, that's loving kindness. And the Lord pours out His loving kindness 
on his people, especially at times like that. And so what a wonderful word we're given. What a wonderful attribute of God. Here's the second one, faithfulness. And your faithfulness by night, he says. I'm focusing on your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness as I drop into bed and I look back over the day and what you've done. God's faithfulness is especially wonderful in, when, when we contrast that with everything else in life. And nothing else is totally faithful. Uh, we look around us and we find that, that people are fickle, including ourselves. We're, we're moody people. We're up and down people, some more than others. The government will sometimes uh, deceive us. Our employers may lie to us. Fellow workers may try to be out for themselves. Even our loved ones will disappoint us. But that is never the case for God. No wonder the psalmist sings praises to the Lord. But faithfulness, God's faithfulness, and our trust in that faithfulness is only as good as that which uh, we, we trust in. And so it's no, good, it's no good to have faith in Him if we really can't trust Him. So it goes back to His trustworthiness, His faithfulness to us. When I was a little boy, every summer we went on vacation down in the Appalachian Mountains where my family came from. And as we went down into the mountains, there was a lot of cool things back in those days that are really not around anymore. But one of the things I remember is that in those, in those mountains as we got there, there would be the... Often on the side of the road, there would be a swing bridge that would go over top of a gorge of some kind and go all the way over to the house where somebody lived. And those swing bridges could be 50 yards, even in my imagination they were miles long, but I don't think they were quite that long. But have you ever been on a swing bridge? You know, you step on one of those and they're not solid. They're waving back and forth. And I, as a little boy, couldn't wait to get on one of those and walk across that. My mother had other ideas. She, although she grew up with these things, she thought I would die. And if I got on one of those, I would never get back. And I wanted to go so bad. My dad didn't care, which always made me suspicious as, <laughs> as to his motives on that. But, uh, so dad overruled a few times, even though mom was in panic. And I got on those bridges and we swayed back and forth. And obviously they held up or I wouldn't be here because they're over these giant valleys, you know. But you, you could only trust that bridge. If, you could only believe in that bridge if you trusted it, right? Uh, I trusted it because I was too naive not to. My dad has been on many. He didn't care. And my mom didn't. What a different attitude depending on how trustworthy you thought the bridge was. That's with our Lord. You, you can't see his faithfulness. You can't do that if you don't believe you can trust him. And the psalmist believes he's trustworthy that in whatever circumstance might come, he can trust in his God. And so he praises God for his faithfulness. Then starting in verse 4, he begins to praise God for what he's done. And he, get, he doesn't get real specific here. Matter of fact, he, he leaves it general, but he talks about the works of God's hands twice. Verse 4, for you, O Lord, have made me glad. Now there's our verse for this psalm. You have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord, and your thoughts are very deep. Twice he mentions the hand of the Lord, and that's because he is glad with what the Lord has actually done. Go drop across the page. Just look across the page, probably in most Bibles, in chapter 90 and verse 14 and 15.
Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Let us be glad according to the days you have afflicted us. And so he, he points out here the, 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 the joy that we can have and be glad, the gladness that we can have in what the Lord has actually done. And so he's delighting in the Lord for what he's done. You know, I, I want to say this. The Lord was, was meant to be enjoyed. Do you realize that? I, I fear a lot of Christians don't really get that. They, they know the Lord should be obeyed. And uh, so they might do that to a large degree. They know the Lord is mighty and powerful, so they might fear Him. They know there's a duty that is out there to follow Him and obey Him, and, and so they might do that. But I fear that a lot of Christians don't realize they are supposed to enjoy the Lord. Do you enjoy Christ? Do you enjoy contemplating Him? Do you enjoy serving Him? There's joy in serving Jesus, the old song says. And He says here, He has made me glad. Uh, another, as we go into the 2024 leaf that you could turn, is to, to ponder and contemplate how you can enjoy the Lord this year. And as you think about that, you notice it's an intellectual thing that he's doing here. Your thoughts are very deep. And the word thoughts here could be purposes, but the psalmist is desiring to ponder God. He's desiring to meditate upon God and His purposes and what God does. Now, unfortunately, many who are even Christians don't really give that much thought. They, they don't spend much time thinking about God and pondering God and going to the depths of all that God is. And so they're bored with God. My friend, let me say this. If you are bored with God, there's nothing wrong with God. There's something wrong with you. The Lord is not boring. He's terrifying. He's magnificent. He's wonderful. He's loving. He's all the things that we could line up at his attributes. He's all these things, but he is never boring. And if you're bored with the Lord, you, you better be doing a little bit of soul searching. The psalmist here said, I, your thoughts are very deep. I'm going to meditate on these things. I'm going to go deep into these things. I'm going to study these things and look at these things. And so again, as you're going into 2024, what could you do on that regard? I would suggest you read the Psalms. Uh, take two or three Psalms a day and go through the Psalms. And don't just read through them quickly. And don't listen to them on the radio or, or your, your tape player or whatever you got. Do you still have tapes anymore? Now, whatever you got, don't do that because that's just too quick. Ponder. Sit down and, and read and think and, and give the Lord praise. Think about it. Get, get the book I just mentioned, The Knowledge of the Holy. And go through that. It wouldn't take you long. Each chapter is about three pages long. Re read uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. A little bigger book. Does a lot of the same stuff. Wonderful books that can guide your thinking. Ponder God. Meditate on God. His thoughts are very deep. And he's never, ever boring. The psalmist said that he has made me glad. And the more I think about him, the more I ponder him, the more I find joy in him. Let, let, me, let me talk about something else here, kind of go off in a little bit of something. I think in this, these verses here, he's not talking just about private worship and meditation. That's there. He's certainly not minimizing your private time with God. But I think that he's talking more about public worship with the Lord. That's what the church is about, to come together publicly, together as a, corpor a corporate group, as a body of Christ, and I think he's talking about that more than privately. And here's two reasons I believe that. 
two clues. Number one, he says in verse two, that I will declare your loving kindness. Now, when we declare something, we usually are speaking out loud to somebody else, right? That's a declaration. Now, I know some of you are world-class self-talkers. You can carry on a whole conversation with yourself. You can argue with yourself. You can even joke with yourself and laugh at your own jokes. Some of you are masters at that. Okay, I won't mention any names, but I, I know a few. And we, almost all of us talk to ourselves a bit, right? But we don't really declare much. Declaration is to others. And so he's declaring the, the greatness of God to others. One of the reasons we come together as a church is to declare corporately to one another the greatness of God. In the uh, context of music, which he's moving into here, the two times in the New Testament when music is mentioned as far as the church is concerned, is both, both of them have to do with using music to instruct and exhort one another. It's to encourage one another. It's to declare to one another. There's a second reason why I think perhaps he's talking about public worship is he's talking about music here. And uh, music was not part of the Old Testament worship until David, as far as we know. It may be occasionally, but it wasn't uh, an integral part. Uh, for, for 400 years, from the time of Moses to the time of David, we hear almost nothing of music of any kind in the tabernacle worship of God. David introduces that to the worship of the Jews at that time through the approval of God or the inspiration of God. And they began to have choirs. They began to have public singing. They began to have instrumental music. And David introduced that at that time. We see in this verse 3 with the tin string lyre and, the, and with the harp and resounding music upon the lyre. These are instruments, guitars, harps, and so forth that they're using here. And so they used instrumental music. Now here's a complete side issue, but there are some Christians that don't believe that instrumental music should be part of the worship service of the church. And I respect such people who hold that view, although I don't agree with it, but I, I, I respect that. Uh, they, they, take verse, they take the New Testament and they look at the New Testament and there's absolutely no mention in the epistles concerning the church gathered of singing with, uh, of instruments. At all. A couple times it mentions in Ephesians and Colossians singing, but it doesn't mention instruments. And so they take it from there that instruments should not be part of the worship, uh, of corporate worship of God's people. Now I don't agree with that because the Old Testament has it like here. And if the Lord wanted us not to use instruments, I think he should have made it much more clear, right? Much plainer. He could have said to us, don't do that. But he didn't do that. So I take it that these instruments the Lord has given us can be used to his glory. And, uh, and we should be using any kind of instrument for him. And so I would say this too. Uh, there is no bad instrument. Uh, sometimes people get an idea, you know, based on their tradition or their background or their preference, that certain instruments should never be used in a worship service. I, I don't see how you can get that out of the Old Testament. And it's never denied in the New Testament. So the instruments themselves aren't bad. It's how they're used. If we're using instruments or singing to bring glory to ourselves, to manipulate people, to, to uh, 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 in any sense uh, be unwholesome, that's not good. But if we're draw, using it for the worship of God, any instrument, any type of singing that is, that is proper within certain bounds, of course, should be used for the glory of God. So we find here that there, he is declaring uh, the greatness of God, and he's using musical 
music and musical instruments to do that. And he is excited about God. The Lord has made him glad. He can't hold back. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy about corporate singing here is that when we're singing a great song of the Lord's, we can't hold back, can we? I mean, we just sing it out. And I love that about, about you folks. Well, he's observed God, and now he moves on in verses 6 to 9 and talks about others who have ignored God. Uh, he gets it. He, he understands that the Lord makes you glad. He's the ultimate glad giver. He's the ultimate joy. But now he turns to some people who don't get it, who don't believe what I've just said, what he's just said. They simply don't get it. They don't see the point at all of turning to the Lord for happiness. Verse 6 says this, A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does the stupid man understand this. And so he's pretty strong here. He says those that don't understand that true joy is found in God and not in anything else, is first of all senseless. The word senseless is a word used of animals. It's a, it means brute. It, it's, like a, it's like a senseless animal that is insensitive to right and wrong. They don't know the difference. They're animals. He says these kind of people are like animals, like brutes. Then he calls them stupid. Now, whoever translated uh, for the New American Standard this particular psalm either was having a lot of fun or they're having a bad day or something. I don't know. I find a couple of verses here interesting. I'll get to the best one in a minute. But the word stupid here is the word usually translated in the Bible as fool. Almost universally translated as fool. But they translated it here as stupid, which is fine. If you understand he's not talking about mental deficiency. He's talking about a spiritual resistance to the things of God. Foolishness towards the things of God. And so he says these people are senseless and foolish. And that's because they look at the exact same evidence for God that the, one, the, the believer looks at, that he's been describing earlier, and they reject it. It's not that they're lacking information. It's not that they're lacking evidence. They have rejected the evidence. And therefore, he says they are foolish and they're senseless. They're like animals who would reject the same thing. A number of years ago, uh, Ken Ham, who is the director of Answers in Genesis, and Bill Nye, uh, the science guy, had a debate on evolution. I think you can find this on YouTube if you want to watch it. But um, these are, of the two people to put before one another, these are the best, probably. I mean, Ken Ham spends, has spent his whole life defending creationism and putting down evolution theory and so forth. So he's a, a, he's a, a champ at this, and he's very articulate. Bill Nye, he is an evolutionist to the core of his toes. He has uh, spent his whole life teaching evolution. He's spent his whole life saying that creationism is nonsense and God is nonsense, and he's also very articulate. So somebody sponsored the two of them getting together for a debate. And the debate is pretty amiable. It was a nice debate. Both of them laid out the evidence for their positions, and they went through it very carefully. And that was just fine. They went away shaking hands and being friendly. But here's, here's the thing. When, when the dust had settled after that hour and a half, two-hour debate, whatever it was, when the dust had settled, neither Ken nor Bill changed positions. And I've never heard of anybody, maybe I'm wrong, but I've never heard of anybody who's listened to that debate 
that decided they wanted to change their views. I've never heard of an evolutionist who listened to it and said, I now want to be a believer in God and in creation. I've never heard of a creationist say, well, Bill Nye was so good, I want to be an evolutionist and deny God. Uh, In other words, here is the evidence. It's put out before everybody who's listening by the experts in their fields, men who really knew what they were talking about. And when the evidence has been given and the dust has settled, guess what? It didn't change anybody. Why? Because our psalmist said, those that look at the evidence who do not want to believe the evidence are senseless and they're foolish. They have gone in with a presupposition that these things cannot be true and therefore they reject them no matter what the evidence is. The evidence will not change someone who does not desire to be changed. And also, as he moves on here in verse 7, he also wants to point out that most of those who have rejected the things of God thinks they're doing pretty well. Verse 7 says this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, look what they're thinking about themselves. They think that they are doing quite well. They're flourishing. They, they might say to you or I, you know, uh, I, we're, I'm doing as well as you, maybe better. And they might be in the outward realm. And so they look at their life and say, I don't need God. I'm doing quite well. I look at my life. Look at my job. Look at my money. Look at my health. Look at my children. Look at my whatever. And I'm doing quite well. Who needs God? Who needs to praise God? I've got all I need here. And so they, see, they believe that they're flourishing, and that is their view. What they don't get is what he goes on to say in verse 7 and in verse 9, that they will be held accountable ultimately to the God of the universe. It says in verse 7, It is only that they might be destroyed forevermore. Verse 9, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies will perish and all who do iniquity will be scattered. You see what he's saying here? These people who say, my authority for how I live my life is me. I will choose how I live. I will ignore the things of God. I am doing perfectly fine. Do not realize that ultimately they are accountable to the ultimate authority, God himself. And one day the Lord will judge that person, if not in this life, then in the next. You know, Christians don't like to talk about that today. That's hate speech, isn't it? That's mean-spirited. That's judgmental. And yet, it's the most loving thing we can do to tell somebody who's going the wrong direction that they're going the wrong direction. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, an American Puritan, said this doctrine of, of God's judgment is indeed awful and dreadful, yet it is from God. And so if it comes from God, we want to proclaim it lovingly and kindly, but clearly. God will hold us to account. It's interesting that a survey by Barna a few years ago discovered that 71% of Americans believe in hell, but only .005 believe they will ever go there. And also that 64% of Americans believe they're going to go to heaven. Well... People know there's a hell, or at least they think there is, but they don't believe they'll ever be judged. They'll never be held accountable. And the message that we want to proclaim, and the psalmist wants to proclaim, is that only a senseless person thinks that way. The person who examines the evidence of God 
says, I want to know him because he is the ultimate and he is worthy of praise and he's worthy of my life. Which leads us right into the third thing he wants to observe. He's observed God and says he has made me glad. He's observed those who are senseless and foolish and says they will ultimately give an account to God. They will ultimately be judged for their choices. Now he moves to the righteous and he wants to observe their lives. How does the righteous live differently than the senseless person? And as he moves into that, he wants to show who they are and he wants to show their lifestyle. He wants to identify them and he wants to show how they live. So first of all, who are these people? Go to verse 8. It says, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Now it's not speaking of the righteous person directly here, but it's speaking of what the righteous person believes. Here is the foundation. Here is the motto, so to speak, for the one who knows the Lord. He knows that the Lord is on high forevermore. The Lord is the ultimate of all things. The Lord is forevermore. He is God, and we are not. Say it that way. He is God, and we are not. And forevermore, forevermore, He will be God, and we will, and we will not be God. And that means to us that we pay attention to Him, because He is worthy of praise, and He will make us glad. Anyone who rejects that is senseless. The righteous person does not. Now, if a person believes verse 8, okay, if you believe verse 8, that the Lord is on high forevermore, how will you live? Well, he gives us four ways people will live. Number one, they will live with strength and courage. In verse 10, But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked ex- uh, exaltedly upon my foes. My ears hear the evil, uh, evildoers who rise up against me. Horn in the Old Testament spoke of strength. It was symbolic of strength. Uh, anointing speaks a blessing. The, the Lord anointed the kings and the prophets and the priests as a blessing. And so when he speaks of, of, of the Lord giving his, his uh, horn and his anointing, he speaks of the Lord blessing him and the Lord giving him strength. And he will do that in the face of his opponents. Going down to verse 11. And my eyes looked uh, exaltedly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers arise against me. He will be opposed. Okay? He's going to have opposition. And yet he is not, a fear, he's not afraid during that opposition because he knows the Lord is his strength and the Lord is his blessing. That's an important thing, folks, because we're going to face opposition in life. We're going to face things that we fear. We're going to face a society, a culture that often is very fearful. And if you don't realize how that fear card is being played by almost everybody out there, then apparently you're, you're not looking at any TV, any radio, listening to any radio, you're not going to any media whatsoever, because that's all they play. That's what everybody plays, the fear card. They want you afraid. And if they can get you afraid, they'll get you on their team. That's, that, that's true of, the, of liberals, that's true of conservatives, that's true of, of almost every media source you look at. They get them afraid, they'll join our side, and they'll send us money. Great. But the, the one who has truly living out verse 8 and know that the Lord is in ultimate control and he's always in charge and he will be forevermore doesn't live on the basis of fear. And so if you're a fearful Christian, that is, that is a contradiction. 
Certainly are things in life to be afraid of and to deal with properly. God gave us fear for a reason, but not, not fear that isn't proper. The true fear is the fear of God. God's fear drives out all other fears. And therefore, when we know that he is in total charge and control, uh, that drives out these other fears. Probably almost everybody in the room knows uh, a little bit about Martin Luther's great uh, statement at the Diet of Worms when he was taken before the political and the religious authorities of his day back in the 1500s and, and commanded to recant of his positions. And we know that great statement that he made, and it partly says, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, wonderful statement of, of courage. Most people probably don't know what he said the day before. The day before or so, when his friends were trying to keep him from going there, because they thought he might be killed, he said this, you can expect from me everything save fear or recantation, I will not flee, much, much less recant. Then he went on to say this, when he said, don't go, don't go. He says, not go to Worms? He said, I shall go to Worms, though there be as many devils as tiles on the roofs. Now that's courage. He could have been killed, probably should have been killed, but he stood strong because he knew his God was in charge, and if he died, he died. He's going to trust the Lord with his life. That's, a, that's how a person lives who truly believes the Lord can be trusted. Secondly, they, can, they will flourish. Not only will they have courage, and blessing, they, can, they will flourish. Verse 12. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. Note the contrast with verse 7. The unbeliever, the foolish one, also think they're flourishing, but it's temporary. It's a temporary flourish. It's like the grass that comes up and then fades away. It's temporary. This one, the believer, the follower of the Lord, will flourish forevermore because the Lord will flourish forevermore. And this is not a prosperity gospel thing. He's not talking about you're always going to have great health and, and great wealth. He's talking about true blessing with God. You will discover in your life, when you live this way, that it's the Lord who is ultimate and it's the Lord who makes you glad. And therefore, you live for Him. Thirdly, You'll be fruitful in old age. Look at the fruitfulness in verse, verse 14. And they will still yield fruit in old age. I think many believers fear getting older and becoming useless, being pushed away by the younger generation. And they're, they're bothered by that. And perhaps I, I understand that. And yet we find here that the, the believer, the one who is righteous will yield fruit in their old age. Now, this means that we continue as we grow older to grow. Don't coast. We grow older, we don't coast. We grow. And the Lord uses us in different ways, perhaps. Some of you snowbirds in particular will find this humorous, I think. One little girl was, uh, came back from summer break. The teachers were asking all the students to, to write a short essay on what they did for the summer. And this little girl, I don't know how old she was, third, fourth grade, whatever, said this. We used to go to grandma and grandpa's house. They lived in a brick house. But now they've moved to Arizona. And they've retired to Arizona. And then she said this. Now they live in a place with a lot of other old people. And they all live in little tin boxes. They ride on big three-wheeled tricycles. And they all have name tags because they don't know who they are. 
They go to a big building called a wrecked hall, but they must have fixed it because it's all right now. They play games and do exercises there, but they don't do them very good. And there's a swimming pool there, but they stand in it with their hats on. I guess they don't know how to swim. And as you leave the park, there's a dollhouse with a little man sitting in it, and he watches all day so that you can't go out without him seeing them. And when they do sneak out, they go to the beach and pick up shells. My grandma used to bake cookies and stuff, but I guess she forgot how. Nobody cooks. They just eat out. They eat the same thing every night. Early birds. Some of you realize you do that too, right? Some of the people don't know how to cook at all. So my grandma and grandpa bring food into the wrecked hall, and they call it a potluck. My grandma and grandpa worked all their lives and earned this retirement. I wish they would move back up here, but I guess the little man in the dollhouse won't let them out. Well, that's the perspective of a little girl towards parents, grandparents that aren't doing much. Don't become like that, folks. Continue to grow and yield your fruit, it says, in old age. Go over to the next line. This is my favorite line in the whole chapter. And I, like I said, whoever translated the New American Standard here must have been having a good day. It said, they shall be full of sap and very green. I love that. You know, nothing like being a sappy Christian, right? <laughs> sappy old person. Uh, most translations don't translate it that way. Uh, probably the best translation would be, they shall be fresh and green. Okay, but I like this sap thing. Think of a tree. A tree that has sap growing, rolling around in there, whatever it does in there, uh, is alive and flourishing. Uh, the sap, when it dries up, means the tree is dead, right? So we don't have somebody who's roll over and playing dead here. They're old, and they're growing older, but they're still fresh and green. There's still sap within them. I'm, I'm almost afraid to be a, be a sap for Jesus. Somebody might buy me a t-shirt, you know, but don't do that. Right? So he says here, look, they, even in their older years, they're going to be fresh. They're going to be green. They're going to continue to grow. Now, as you grow older, things will change. Because of physical and other issues, you may not be able to do what you used to do. That's understandable. But there's always places and ways in which you can serve Jesus Christ, even in your older years. I have visited, and some of you know who I'm talking about, I have visited people in the nursing home that are 104 years old, that that encouraged me by their love for Christ at 104 years old. Now, she couldn't do much. She couldn't get out of that bed, but she did love the Lord and never complained one time that I ever heard her in all that time. What an encouragement that is. You can do that, and you can pray. If you can do nothing else, you can pray as you sit in a bed like that. Most of us will never get to be 104. I sure don't want to be 104. Uh, But uh, if the Lord takes you there, then the Lord can use you wherever he is. The point is, don't grow old and crusty. All right? Stay sappy. All right? You can write that in your Bible if you want to. The goal then is that we should be ministering in our older years as well. Never stop growing. And then his fourth uh, thing that he wants to say about what happened, how these kind of people live, is verse 15. So, so here we are in verse 14. Here we have a Christian who is still fresh, who is still green, who is still growing no matter how old they are. What does that look like? What are they, de- what are they going to declare to the rest of us? Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright, 
He is my rock, and there is no up, uh, unrighteousness in him. In the context, I think he's still here of old age. He is saying that even in our latter years, uh, we can be de- declaring certain things about God. So if you're 20-some years old and you're desiring to walk with God, wonderful. How exciting that is. But think about the years ahead and how that should continue for the next 60, 70 years of your life. That's what he's talking about here. Continuing to move forward. And when you're old and you look back on your, on your background and on your life, here's three things you should be able to declare to young people. If you're 100 years old here, I don't think we have the oldest person in our church is 98. But if you're that old and you're looking back, and I know she's watching, by the way, right now. So, hi, Norma. She's, she's, she's watching us on her iPad. How about that? She know, and thank you for getting her an iPad, guys. I think some of you guys did that for her. Somebody did. Not you guys. Somebody did. Anyway, she's watching right now. And as she watches this, she's 98 years old. She's watching us and a whole bunch of older people. What should they declare to the young people? Let me give you three things that they ought to declare. Number one, that the Lord is upright. That the Lord is upright. The Lord has has never let us down. He's always kept his word. That I, I have lived for the Lord 60, 70, 80 years. And I can look back and say he's never, ever reneged on his word. He's always done exactly what he said he would do. Here's the second thing. It says here that he is my rock. As you look back over all those years, you will say, or should say, and should declare to younger people, for all these years, all these decades, there's been ups and there's been downs, there's been hard times, there's been good times, but he's always been my rock. He's always been my foundation. He's always been my strength. He's never crumbled underneath my feet yet, and he never will. And then a final thing is he it says here, and no unrighteousness is in him. He's never done us wrong. He's always done us right. There might have been times when we question, does he really know what he's doing with my life? But when, when the dust is settled and the years roll on and we look back, we, we will say with confidence to the next generation, he has never, ever done me wrong. And if you can come to that stage in your life, whatever age you are right now, or whatever you project in the future, and you can come to the the end of your days or near the end of your days and say, the Lord has always kept his word. The Lord has always proven faithful. And the Lord has never done us wrong. Then you will pass on to the next generation that you have a God who will never fail. He's always on high forevermore. He is God. That should be our goal in 2024. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the God that we serve. And Lord, we are so grateful that you can make us glad. And you do make us glad as we ponder you and think about who you really are. Lord, may we, this coming year, may we declare these things with our lives as well as with our words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.